Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Right, back on schedule this week and back with a guest. The last two episodes have been solo pods. Last week's one was not scheduled to be a solo pod, but I did so anyway. And it was slightly divisive, the content of last week's show. That was as I expected it to be. Now, I should emphasize, and if you're a regular listener, then you may have surmised this already. But I should emphasize that I consider the general toing and froing within music and specifically within this area of the dance scene, I consider it to be very, very narrow in terms of the opinions that get expressed. And that frustrates me a lot, actually. So where possible, I try and take a position. I like to take a position, which is contrary to that. And sometimes I will overemphasize that position really just to make sure the point is heard. So last week's episode can probably be viewed in that context. Anyway, we had some great back and forth about it on the Discord server, actually. It was some really good debate, really interesting debate over there. So if you have anything to say about that episode or any other episode of this show, then you can join the Discord at hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. It's an open server, so anyone can join. And... um. Yeah, take part in the debate because at the end of the day, this show is about debate, isn't it really? We're talking about stuff. So like I said, if you've got anything to say, then we'd love to see you there. It's a great community of people and we were able to have a discussion as opposed to an argument about the uh, about the stuff discussed on last week's show. Anyway, the main order of business prior to getting into this week's conversation is, of course, the 2023 annual not a diving podcast pledge drive. Yeah, that's what's going on. For the next two weeks, there are special benefits which you get when you sign up to support the show. Now, there are three ways of doing that. Two of them are on Patreon, two tiers to our Patreon offering, and that's available at patreon.com slash scuba official. And then the third method is through the means of a one-off donation, which you can do at scubaofficial.io slash support. Actually, you can get to the Patreon on that link too. So what are those three levels of support and what do you get during the pledge drive for signing up? 
Well, let's take it in ascending order and covering US dollars and GBP. If you pledge a one-off donation of over 10 US dollars, let's call that £8.50, then you get a 25% off Bandcamp voucher for the Hot Flush Recording Store. If you join the Patreon on the Solidarity tier, which is four US dollars a month or £3.50, then you get a 50% off voucher at our Bandcamp store. But most importantly, on the musicality tier of the Patreon, which is 10 US dollars a month or £8.50, then, well, you receive the 2024 musicality t-shirt. And let me tell you, this is an absolutely bad boy t-shirt. On last year's Pledge Drive, we had a previous iteration of the musicality t-shirt and I've been wearing that all year but the 2024 one is new and improved and this is the only way you can get it. Now let me just briefly tell you what you get as part of your Patreon subscriptions. Anyway, regardless of the pledge drive, the solidarity tier gets you the podcast without ads. Now we are going to be starting ads next week so we haven't had them previously but they will be starting but on Patreon you will not get them so that's a bonus but then there are also actual bonus podcasts which go up too. Most notably, historically, was the Singles Club series, which is very popular and actually pretty fun to do. It's basically where I review a top 10 list or chart in a pithy, quick and light-hearted manner. If you watched my Fact Magazine video from a few years ago, you may get the idea, if you remember that. On the musicality tier, you get that stuff but you also get all the music that we release on Hot Flush Recordings and affiliated labels. Now, there is an additional format of content which is coming, and that is videos that I will be doing explaining my production processes and talking through tunes that I've made and general studio sort of technique. Those will be available only on the musicality tier. So generally speaking, that is absolutely where you want to be if you're getting involved with the Patreon. So for the next two weeks... Sign up, as I said, scubaofficial.io slash support or patreon.com slash scubaofficial. And you also, of course, have the knowledge and the reassurance that you're supporting the best music podcast out there. In addition to our huge gratitude and ongoing deference to you as supporters of the show. Now, the podcast has been really successful, actually, over the last 92 episodes. It's exceeded my expectations significantly. But we do have production costs and we are operating on a zero margin cost structure. So we need your support, basically. And well, the pledge drive is just the ideal time to do that. So yeah, get after it. Patreon.com slash scubaofficial, scubaofficial.io. And yeah, it would be nice of you, wouldn't it? Think about it. Really, really nice. Anyway, thanks in advance. And um, yeah, okay, on with the show today. As mentioned, the first guest in three episodes, it's Praveen Sharma. You will be aware of him via his music as part of Step Cure with Machine Drum and as Braille, releasing on labels such as Hot Flush, but also Rush Hour and Friends of Friends, amongst others. He's coming on the show today to discuss, well, amongst other things, to discuss modular synths, because if you follow him on socials, you will be aware that he is a bit of a modular don. And this is the topic which we've kind of skirted around a bit on the show previously, but not really dug into it in any depth. So yeah, I was looking forward to doing that with him. And uh, it was a fun conversation and a conversation I think you're going to enjoy. So 
This has been a lengthy intro. Without further delay, here is Praveen Sharma. Praveen Sharma, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? I'm great, Paul. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Um, second attempt at recording this. So as I was saying previously <laughs> off mic, tell me how you've managed to get your mic working on Ableton as well as speaking on FaceTime, because this is something which has been beyond the capabilities of every single one of my previous guests. So tell right, me how you've done right. that. I, I love that you were calling me a technical wizard as I wasn't even recording, so we had to restart. But uh, <laughs> it's it's pretty funny how I got this working because it, it ties right into um, my current life as a social media bad word. I'm not even going to say the word. But um, yeah, so I got this box. It's called, <laughs> it's got the worst name ever, iRig Duo, I-O. Okay. Um, so I got it so I could record... Uh, everything going on in the studio, even if it wasn't like recorded into Ableton, because, you know, aligning video and audio after the fact was taking so much time. So this little, little box lets me get IO direct from um, my UAD Apollo. So I've got that jacked in. Okay. This is, this is going to get complicated here. I got the mic into the Apollo and then the iRig Duo 2 Pro uh, connected to both the Apollo outs and ins. So I can hear you because it's sending that to the Apollo. Right. And you can hear me because I'm sending the Apollo to you. Does that make sense? Right. Okay. <laughs> so it, <laughs> we wouldn't, did it. it wouldn't be possible without that little extra bit of kit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How much does that cost? They're pretty cheap these days, I think. Yeah, maybe a hundred something. They sound great. Okay. They are very useful. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I must say you are you are sounding great. The uh, radio voice is it's it's mellifluous. I think is the word that I was looking for. There. <laughs> that is a great. I've never had my radio voice called that, but I I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, I had a past life as a radio DJ, uh, very briefly, on. WVKR 91.3. Oh, no shit, really? Oh, yeah, really. Uh, that is actually, like, before I even met Travis Machine Drum, I would get his um, his promos from Merck. You know, as I was just starting to release music, I was getting his promos, and then we met on, like, IRC or something, so it was very fateful. <laughs> Wait, so what did you, what were you playing on the radio? Uh, so, yeah, it was way back in, geez, 90... Nine, two thousand and one, two thousand two, maybe. I don't know, but um, yeah, I started the show. Started. I took over a Friday night slot, and it started sort of as a turntablism, uh, hip hop show. So we would have like four turntables in the little radio studio, and then we would have some friends who were MCs come on, and um, then we would let callers call in and battle the MCs in the studio <laughs> no. um, as, as we were like, you know, scratching on top and whatever. Um, but as you could imagine, that got a bit out of hand, um, <laughs> and it wasn't exactly radio friendly. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we got, we got um, uh, cut pretty quickly. But they let me stay on. And it was funny. I got kind of demoted to a, a Friday morning at like, it was like 6 to 9 a.m. was that's, my that's slot. That's the breakfast show. That's a great slot, right? Yes. Yeah. And it, it, you know, I was 
I loved it so much I did it, even though that those hours were not very Praveen compatible. But um, yeah, I was playing um, lots of IDM, like like ambient IDM, like really chill, you know, stuff because it's six in the morning. But I would have lots of people call in and um, and do some conversations on the air and stuff, and it was really fun. Uh, yeah, eventually I got my night slot back, but um, yeah, did not have live battles on the air after that. Well, I was gonna, yeah, I wanted to start actually by talking about New York because that's where you're speaking from, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm in Brooklyn right now. So how is it at the moment? Like, what is the New York music scene like? I haven't been there since, well, actually, no, that's a lie. I was there. <laughs> yeah, I saw you. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> wow. I, I actually wrote down, that was in my question. I haven't been to New York since before the pandemic. Which is just <laughs> That is not true. I saw you here. It's an extremely well, well-prepared interview. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I definitely didn't get much of a sense of how it yeah. had changed since the pandemic and sure. i heard so i heard from so many different people that it has changed significantly but but you you were away you were living on the on the west coast right so yeah tell me about what it's like right now yeah it's it's interesting so when i left um i think i left new york in 2016 it did seem like it was kind of quieting down it was taking a bit of a downturn lots of you know our favorite indie venues were being shut down um and then, yeah, I was in San Francisco for around five years and came back in 2020 during the pandemic, you know, be closer to family and all that because uh, my family's here and in Connecticut. Um, I will say you are asking the wrong person to uh, get the pulse of the New York scene right now. Uh, <laughs> but to be completely honest, even from the outside, um, because I'm not going out and partying and checking things out as much as I used to, uh, it's amazing. <laughs> like, frankly, there's so much going on and um, really talented artists coming up, really good, close-knit crews um, like kindergarten and stuff that are, you know, running things that like um, uh, Mr. Sunday uh, nowadays, I think is the, the new spot there. Um, elsewhere, which the Glassland folks went and opened, um, great venue. And, uh, and even like smaller spots like Bossa Nova and stuff and Paragon, they are, uh, there is definitely, um, a sort of younger crowd that is, is really energetic and making things happen here right now. And like, what kind of sound is resonating with people? Like what's, what's the kind of hot thing? Yeah. I mean, look, I've listened to your podcast. What you want me to say is it's, oh, it's too hard and fast. <laughs> no, and that's the need to slow down. Uh, <laughs> no, we've been moving away from old men moaning type podcasts. That's, that's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. that's totally like six months ago on the show. So, uh, okay. give me some positive vibes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, to be honest, a lot of the stuff I've heard is not too dissimilar to what a lot of us were into in like the heyday of hot flush. It's really deep. Lots of dub influence, um, like kind of 140 vibes. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of the harder techno that is faster. Um, I see no problem with that. I'm, you know, maybe I'm a little too old. My joints can't handle that tempo, but <laughs> but uh, but I appreciate it. But yeah, I mean, you'd be surprised. It's almost like, um, you know, there's like a heyday uh, happening again where it's uh like TurboTax and a lot of these like underground dubstep and post dubstep parties that were playing like the deeper stuff. Um, you can find a lot of that here. Well, that's positive, I guess. Maybe. Posi P. That's what they call me. Are you willing to discuss why you moved to the West Coast? 
on such a podcast as this? Uh, yeah, I mean, we can, if, if you really want to get into that, I guess we can. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I got a great opportunity um, in 2016 uh, to go work at a company I was a big fan of since I used their computers to make all my music. Um, yeah, so I ended up at Apple and, um, yeah, I'm on a team there and, uh, get to do a lot of really amazing stuff. Uh, it was a struggle the first few years over on the West coast to really balance, um, continuing to make music with, uh, all the new stuff that was going on. But I think I found a pretty good, um, balance, uh, recently. Since moving back? Yeah. Specifically since moving back. Yeah. I mean, okay. I mean, you can answer as much or as little as this as you want, but what was it like working over there for Apple? Like specifically for Apple, like what was it like being there? Right. Um, you know, I, I'd never worked at a big company, so it was a bit of a, a, a shock, but, um, yeah, I will say, you know, I can't talk too much about it, of course, but, um, you know, privacy, privacy, whatever. Uh, I was really happily surprised um, from what I found, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a pretty great place, uh, on the inside. Um, you know, especially during the face ID days, it felt like, a um, a bunch of small startups really collaborating to make something amazing. And, um, yeah, somehow in one of the biggest companies in the world, they, they still seem to, to have a bit of magic inside there. Forgive my ignorance, but what were the face ID days? Um, you know, when, uh, face ID was, was being, created and designed and all the new sensors and stuff were coming up oh okay so, yeah that was uh okay um, what was so what was the significance of that i mean i'm, I'm talking from complete ignorance here so <laughs> well the only reason i bring it up is that's right after i joined so oh, right, okay, you know, okay. yeah so so that was really my first experience of something really big happening at the company and um yeah it was a uh, pretty eye-opening um i was happily surprised i i was ready to go in pretty jaded um, you know, big corporation and all that, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it still is a big corporation. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying it isn't, but, uh, yeah, I was happily surprised. Right. Okay. Okay. But, but less enamored with the West coast more generally. Yeah. You know, um, it was really not for, for, for my wife and I, to be honest. Um, never really found our flow out there. And it's really interesting because when I was in New York, um, I was in New York my entire life, except for uh, 1999, I spent in London going to um, uh, School of Audio Engineering. But um, other than that, basically, I've always been in New York. And my friends have always been um, music friends, you know, mm. friends who made music or played music or were just into music. Um, you know, I wasn't really <laughs> trying to make friends in the tech scene that's not really um what i was most interested in but out there it was very difficult to find um to find that and you know it, i could attribute it to just being older and not being young and trying to really make big things happen in the music scene like i was here in new york but um yeah never really found that i mean there's there's plenty of good spots out there there are lots of good acts that come through san francisco for example um but uh, between family and friends being out here and also just the, the, the scale of the city, I think we really missed New York. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's understandable. Like it's a very different um, atmosphere, I guess, in my limited experience of the two things. 
one other thing I'd say is, um, I mean, it's gorgeous out there and the produce is amazing, but, um, uh, we're not really outdoorsy folks, uh, too much. So yeah, I mean, if you are, I think you would feel very differently about the West coast. There are just so many opportunities to go see, um, amazing things and yeah, be in nature, um, which is something, um, we're not super interested in usually. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, there was a reason why I wanted to get you to admit to being a a tech worker was because I want to be able to, well, have that context when I'm asking you the questions I'm about to ask you about, about making music, because Obviously, you're a oh, you're a modular guy these days. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm just an artist. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I wanted to talk to you about how you kind of got there, though, because you know you've made all kinds of music over the years, and um, a lot of it is well. I mean, the kind of sepulchre era, and I guess most of the most of the braille stuff was yeah. based around Ableton. But then prior yep. to that, you were doing stuff which I suppose might be described as folktronica is, is, is that a, a genre name you want to you want to embrace yeah i don't know about embracing it but it wouldn't be the first time i have heard that um yes so, so, so tell me about how you made that stuff like what what were the what were the kind of core like techniques that you were using to to get those records sounding as they did i always preferred toytronica um okay. yeah uh you know, I was using a lot of acoustic guitar um, and, you know, I had a little toy piano, like one of those tiny ones you buy for kids. Um, and then, especially for the Praveen and Benoit stuff, which was, um, you know, more sort of heady and emotional, uh, I, I took a trip to India and um, I purchased uh, some tablas and like a harmonium and stuff. And it was the first time I'd been there. Um, my dad hadn't been back for like 20 years or something crazy. Um, so yeah, all of those acoustic instruments together was sort of, you know, the vibe for, for that era. Where in India would, did you go? Uh, so we flew into Delhi, um, and then, you know, I had never been, so we saw some of the sites and, um, you know, like the Taj and it was quite a culture shock. Uh, and then, um, yeah, we, we took a, a little toy train up, uh, up the mountain. Uh, first, we went to Chandigarh, which is where my dad lived for most of his life. But then we took a, a train up to um, Shimla, used to be Simla, um, where my dad spent his youth. And, and on that train ride, I actually recorded the, um, uh, a lot of the found sounds on, on the Praveena Benoit album, but specifically the, the intro um, story, which is like my dad uh, and talking about this, this tunnel um, I think the track name is Tunnel still there. So, uh, yeah, and then we ended up in Shimla, which is kind of like at the foot of the, the Himalayas and uh, was a beautiful place. Lots of monkeys. <laughs> right, okay. But, but not for you because you're not into the outdoors, obviously. Look, okay, look, I'm not going to say I can't appreciate nature. I love nature. It's just uh, <laughs> I prefer a vibrant city culture to a vibrant nature culture, I guess. Right. So, I mean, so most of that stuff then was recording... A- you know, acoustic instruments or whatever, or yeah. using found sounds and then processing. Yeah. Lots of processing afterwards. Um, you know, I, I was a big fan of um, lots of the sort of IDM and sound artists back then. And also just like Max MSP guys like Finesse were a huge inspiration. So yeah, taking organic instruments and running them through 
um, granular samplers was co- kind of my shtick back then. Right, yeah, I remember you talking about granular yeah. back in the day when I first met you, and, and I had no fucking clue what a granular <laughs> sampler was at that point. Yeah, it's, it's a bit played out now, but back then it just blew my mind. Um, yeah, I, I intentionally avoid all granular things these days, but uh, yeah, it was a big deal for my sound back then. And what were you using door-wise was it already Ableton or? No. Uh, well, so I used Ableton since V1 when I performed live. Uh, it just kind of was the only way I knew how to perform live before <laughs> before I got Ableton. I was bringing out my entire desktop with Cubase on it to like raves and and like my Nord lead. And, and like I had like a Roland MC505 or something for the drums. But um it was it was lame. Like I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was basically playing back a sequence and then like modifying things. I guess that's not much different than what most people do now. Regardless, I guess it just looked more impressive because there was a lot of gear there. And um, the change to doing more, I guess, dance stuff was that something that came through messing around with kit, or was it something um, a kind of set of musical influences that pushed you into doing that stuff? Because I mean, like you know, obviously, when, when you're working with Ableton, I mean, Ableton, I think, to a large extent, um, pushes people to make dance music. I think in the way that it works, but that's always been the way I perceived it, anyway. No, I, I can I can definitely agree with that too. Well, I, what I would say is it just it pushes people to make loop based music, and and um, yeah, I mean that that's a lot of music, so there's nothing wrong with that. Um, no, I mean, I, I started with dance music. My, my origin story was like Juan Atkins and Detroit Techno. Actually, before that, it was like har- Happy Hardcore. I was just a kid finding random Happy Hardcore CDs. And no like, shit, um, really? Yeah, in, in Rhino Records, where I ended up working years later. Um, but yeah, I would walk in and I'd just like look for compilations. My sister used to go to Canada. And when she was younger, she wasn't 21. So she'd go up to Canada to clubs because she could do that, I think, at a younger age. And she'd come back with some tapes and stuff. So that was really like my first exposure. And then, um, and then I had a cousin who was um, uh, really into uh, the sort of like local rave scene. <laughs> I guess it was upstateraves.com was actually a website. Much like we had Dubstep Forum, it was a very similar thing. Um, yeah, so like uh, Frankie Bones and Juan Atkins and, um, and stuff like that was really was one of my first loves i mean alongside like sure aphex twin and stuff like that but um yeah so moving to making it was i mean had you always thought about doing it or was it something that yeah i mean i i I, first stuff i made honestly i was i mean it was probably more trance than techno but uh that's what I used to perform when I was like 16 playing at raves that really? uh, I couldn't, I couldn't even legally get into. Yeah. Yeah. I'd bring out my MC 505 and like eventually when Ableton came out, that was finally when I could do a good live set. Uh, Ableton with the 505 was my favorite sort of moment there. Um, and um, I had a friend back then. Um, I don't know if I've really told anyone this, um, but yeah, I had a really close friend. He was, you know, living in upstate New York. He was uh, the only person who knew like the sort of IDM side of things, like uh, FX Twin and Square Pusher and Autechre and all that. His name was Adam Lee. And um, yeah, we would, we would jam out and stuff. We always had um, like kind of goals to collab and release stuff, but he passed away suddenly. And um, yeah, if you uh, 
if you check my my first release it's like a seven inch on um expanding records i dedicated one of the songs to him it's like uh right. dedicated to iresto i think it says or maybe adam lee i forget what did so, yeah, you that was yeah. Sorry, go on. finish go on. Oh, I was just going to say, so that was like, you know, that was origin story. I was already making dance music, getting back into it. Uh, when I actually had the chops to make good dance music was, um, was awesome. I mean, like, yeah, I, I still don't really consider Sepulchre dance music, but the early Braille stuff was so much fun to make. It was so cathartic. It was like full circle in a way, but except finally making it well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, obviously, you know, through a process of making music and and I guess just accumulating experience, you, you improve. But I mean, would you? To what extent was the kit and the software and all that kind of stuff? How how significant was the, was that stuff? I'm just trying to focus on 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 the kind of technical side because I want to eventually get to um, <laughs> the modular stuff, which is the reason why I'm asking you these uh, questions yeah. like this. But like, yeah, tell me. About that. I mean, honestly, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just jump right to it. It basically that the kit and the gear was extremely important for anything electronic I made for the folktronica stuff and stuff like that. It was um, less important. I mean, the plugins were really important and stuff, but like it was less about uh, interfacing with the computer. The computer was just recording and then I would go in and process and edit it. And, um, and that is where I am again today, because that is what I find most inspiring. There's a huge middle, um, area of my music career where, you know, like Sepulchre even, um, we did a lot in the box. I mean, so much that like, I mean, pencil pimp is called pencil pimp because we used the pencil tool in Ableton so damn much that, that the app would like freeze up. Yeah. I mean, like. There was a lot of meticulous in the box stuff going on. I mean, I had a bunch of synths. We we definitely recorded a lot of analog gear that I had, but um, yeah, uh, just you can do anything in the computer now, mm. and that is it's overwhelming and intimidating. And um, for me, you know, I'm just talking about me, but um, that's really what led me to. Uh, the modular side of things. It's just like, let me try and get out of the box here. And uh, maybe every time I open Ableton, I won't be terrified and have an existential crisis. <laughs> um, and it worked. It worked. It's the most inspired I've ever been. And I'm not saying you need to go out and buy a bunch of modular gear to get inspired. If you can work in Ableton and just Ableton, you can do everything that anyone with modular gear is doing. I mean, maybe easier and faster if you're used to it you know it's just it's just about what you need and you know for me with you know my job and everything it's uh, a lot of work on a computer and i never really realized um how draining more work on a computer even if it was creative work um like musical work uh was after all that you know i mean i had a kind of a similar i guess realization a few years back when I, yeah. and I, and actually to be honest, it, it's funny because a lot of this is, is changing your perspective and finding a sort of fundamental change, which then leads to inspiration, right? Because I mean, I, I was, I worked in the box, purely in the box for, for a long time. And then, you know, did, did something similar, not with modular, but just, you know, just, just using outboard stuff, just using gear. Right. And absolutely loved it. 
and felt so inspired. But actually, I, I really didn't make very good music during, during that period. <laughs> and what I've subsequently realised is that I work much better in the box. But but everything everything you've just said about the the kind of oppressive nature of working on a computer yeah. absolutely resonates. And it is 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 a it's a problem I have to say for me because I mean I I know my my best work is done when I'm sat hunched over a fucking computer, but it's not like it's difficult to like get up for it you know like it's yeah. it's frustrating yeah. like that. I think specifically for me, um, one of the the reasons I think that I gravitate to to doing stuff outside of the the computer these days is because um, the way I work it's very improvisational. So I don't sit down and know what I'm going to make. If I ever do, it turns out awful. It really does. Um, so, you know, sitting down at a blank Ableton slate, even if you have a good template set up, it's, it's still really intimidating compared to um, like what I have now is I've, I've created a system. I did all the setup ahead of time. I have a system that, you know, it works the way I want it so I can sit down and just, start playing basically and recording and um that feels more natural to me i'm i'm in awe and <laughs> very envious of anyone who who can sit down with an intention um at something like a uh, ableton and and just sit there and make it happen and i see it all the time there's so many so many talented people who who can do that that's just not me just to get technical very briefly for the people listening to us who actually do know about the modular shit, what's your, what's a broad outline of your basic like uh, setup sure. that you sit down to work on? Um, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's grown quite a bit. Uh, I started just with like a sub harmonicon and DFAM, which are like the Moog semi-modular little guys. Um, and that really blew me away because the sub harmonicon, especially like you can, you can think you're in control, but you're never really in control. And I loved that. I love giving up a bit of control. Um, so, yeah, I, I realized what I loved most about that was the combination of the subharmonicon and, um, and a keyboard. So, like, feeding the subharmonicon notes, um, but, like, letting it do the rhythm and to get these polyrhythms and stuff. So I kind of, you know, broadly based the system I built off of that goal so everything is built around sort of chords um those chords feed out to you know bass and lead and a couple polystents and um the the sound of those chords is actually something that i i got really inspired by um barker uh he <laughs> He drew, when I was first getting into this, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And I was terrified because everyone was like, don't do it. Stop. <laughs> um, yeah. Or straight up, like, get out of the group chat. You're no longer one of us. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he had a napkin diagram that he wrote, like someone on like one of the forums or something, I think asked him, hey, how did you, you know, make utility or whatever? And it was just like, polysense, arrow. Uh, low pass gate and that's basically it i think of something like that i didn't know what a low pass gate is but yeah now that is basically uh my favorite thing in the world so it's like polysense through a low pass gate and then and then uh i have a drum set up now which i was super skeptical about but um yeah lots of euclidean rhythms and stuff i mean we'll sit here for like an hour if i start going through modules um yeah 
I will say for drums, the only reason that I stuck with modular drums is because of uh, Steady State Fate. This company, they're based out of New York. The guy is unbelievable. And the sound out of these things is unreal. Like, uh, they have this ultra kick module and it's, you know, if you ever want to kick and you have that thing, you can make it. It's it's amazing. Yeah, okay. So the sound quality thing is sometimes specified as a sort of unique aspect of of modular i mean i i must confess that i am extremely skeptical about this whole thing so is it true that you can achieve sound quality which is superior <laughs> no no i didn't think the so the <laughs> opposite man come on my modular setup is so fucking noisy it sounds so bad there's like noise from all my best modules like this mimeophone oh yeah i have like an effects rack in the middle and like half of the effects have crazy noise and whine to the point where i had like to buy uh noise suppressant like power cable like it's the worst anyone who says modular sound quality is good is out of their mind i just like i just bought just to test the water like one of these super expensive like uh, I think the the company Swedge Sea Wedgeman or something. Um, the 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 designer passed away unfortunately, but they're still manufacturing and they're so hyped up. They're expensive, and it's like oh, immaculate you know uh, components used and sound quality. That's wonderful, but the second you patch literally anything else into it, all of that is lost. So for me, you know, I'm Mister Ninety Six Kilohertz guy. Although I had to. <laughs> I had to stop. I had to stop because my hard drive can't fit all the modular stuff I'm recording. <laughs> so I had to go down to 48K. And that was a real moment for me, man. That was like, you know what? I accept the terrible audio quality of modular gear <laughs> and the lower headroom of 48 kilohertz. And I'm all right. I'm at peace <laughs> with it. <laughs> lower headroom of 48 man's 16 1644 i can hear it man i can hear it don't tell me 1644 i'm gonna shed a tear over here that's killing me <laughs> so is it just workflow then is it is yes. that is that all it is it, it really for me it is entirely workflow i mean you you're building your own instrument that's why you you pay so much freaking money it's like um you're building it in hardware. You could do the same thing with like Max MSP or, or you know, even probably just Ableton with plugins and um, MIDI plugins and stuff. But you are building your own instrument and it becomes more of an extension of you and how you play and how you want to create um, than, you know, a, a generalized interface like a mouse, which is an amazing interface for lots of things. Um, a mouse and like a, a DAW, you know. What's your opinion of um let's i mean just to step back for a moment sure. and, and be very very general about the development of music tech generally yeah. in the last couple of decades since you started making music since you had your 505 and, <laughs> yeah uh, yeah um i would what would what do you what do you consider to be the most important developments over that time oh geez that is a really good question um Give me a second to think here. I think, I think maybe, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm divided here. I would say either auto-tune for better or for worse, or, um, I mean, pick out a few. I mean, yeah, it doesn't yeah I mean, auto-tune, but also, um, you know, when Ableton came out and it had like 
this super efficient and easy warping of audio. Right. I think that was completely revolutionary, especially for those of us making um, loop-based music. I mean, you you could see it. There was years after that that like edits became a thing. Like I remember the disco edit days where like everyone was just making disco edits because now you could just throw any song into Ableton or whatever and and um, and have it be auto warped instead of having to sit there with like your Akai sampler like meticulously chopping up stuff. Um, so those are the two I would probably think off the top of my head. Yeah. Well, okay. So, I mean, look, those are two. Um, We're not at I'm AI in- yet, by the way. Like I don't consider AI yet because it's not really. No, great. no, no. I mean, that's not where I was going. I, I, I wanted to, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's kind of, that's software. Like one of the big trends actually of this period as well has been the kind of revival of analog hardware, right? Yeah. And I guess modular sort of fits into that kind of a trend. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because I remember the the days of the kind of nineties days of digital synths, right? And just the um, how unsatisfying those things were. Is that a fair comment? I mean, no. Half of modular is digital. You know, like half of my modules are digital modules. Like there is there is this this um, this misunderstanding of like modular and people think oh you have modular gear it's all analog and that's not true half of this stuff is digital and and even just when we talk about analog versus digital i've kind of come full circle on that one i mean if you listen to stuff today the majority of the sounds you're hearing are digital and i don't even mean like oh because they're coming from a daw i just mean like they're either from or based on digital synths and um rack mount gear from like the 90s and they sound great. They're nostalgic, just like since were you know their analog since were. Yeah, I mean, like the, I mean, the, the question I was actually going to ask was, um, like, to what extent was the uh, the kind of revival of that kind of yeah. analog gear, which had more than half an eye on the kind of classic seventies and eighties mm-hmm. era, like how how much of that is just just nostalgia, and how much of music tech, generally speaking, is driven by nostalgia? Well, I think part of that revival for whatever classic analog synths or whatever um was was because a lot of the music gear being manufactured in i think the late 90s um maybe even early 2000s was was pretty crap and it did sound like shit so people were correct if i got myself you know a a korg monopoly or profit five or whatever yeah that sounds miles better um, than, than whatever, like, you know, Roland JP 8,000 or I forget whichever one they were releasing at the time. Um, when I was seeing this happen or even the Nord lead, my first Nord lead, I still love it, but it sounded like shit. If you compare it to an actual analog synth, it was one of the first virtual analogs. Um, so I don't think that it was incorrect to say that these classic synths or classic gear in general sounded better. They, they did. I just think today we don't have that problem anymore. Things in the box can sound just as good, if not better. You have so many tools, free and not, that allow you to change the sound of anything to sound, you know, nostalgic, if that's really what you want. Right. I mean, my my perception of that is that really in, in the last 10 years, things have gradually coalesced to a point where, yeah, I agree that you can essentially achieve anything you want just with a with a laptop. Yeah, I agree. 
I mean, like, where does where does that leave? I mean, I, I guess to go kind of go back to my kind of nostalgia question, like where does that leave? Um, you know, these kind of manufacturers of of uh, you know, like Dave Smith Oberheim, for example, which I've got, I've got one, which is fucking awesome. It's so so great. But oh, I mean, yeah. I, you know, I've asked myself many times, like, do I need this thing? And the answer is definitely not really. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I agree. And it, it is a. It, yeah, I mean, you could see what's happening. And by and by the way, I love all that shit. I mean, my Prophet Six it was one of my favorite pieces of gear ever. Um, and I'm considering getting one of those Oberheims, those new ones that are massive. But do I need it? No. I need another analog polysynth. Like I need a hole in my head. But um, I have seen, and it does make me sad. You know the the decline of a lot of those companies. I mean, you can see it. They're they're being bought. You know, Moog, I think, was just bought by InMusic or something. And um, yeah, I mean, after Dave Smith passed, I believe the same happened uh, to Sequential or whatever. And yeah, I mean, it's happening across the industry. Uh, I I don't want to be pessimistic, but it's not a great sign. Um, Yeah, I mean, all this modular stuff, too. It's like it's not making too many folks rich over here like there's like one guy making some stuff <laughs> and like a small amount of people buy it i guess you know so yeah i think the fact you can do everything in the box is great it's not great for people trying to manufacture hardware mm. yeah hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I mean, so, I mean, I guess the, the, the kind of Ableton innovation that you described that was kind of a workflow innovation I would broadly characterize that as. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're talking about um, modular as a as, as broadly a workflow solution. Yeah, I've kind of posited that, and I'm not sure if this is really true or not, but I mean, I had a kind of broad hypothesis that um, the, the kind of music tech developments up to 2000 largely maybe between you know the 60s or whatever and and 2000 like most of the well the the kind of biggest innovations in in that period were making new sounds whether it was like amplify guitars and then messing around with that and then you know the the emergence of those you know the the classic rolling gear and stuff and the ways that those those were used but since sort of 2000 the innovation has been around like i said workflow and essentially enabling people to do stuff easier yeah totally which is a kind of a loaded kind of thing <laughs> so is, is that uh did you agree with that generally yeah yeah i do i mean i do think you know if we're talking about like innovations made in in the music tech space i think one moment where my mind was blown and i kind of did make that leap from like analog is better um was uh i was in some some class i went to nyu for music tech and um I was in a class where one of the guys from from UAD, I think it was, came to our class to explain how they made their Roland Space Echo emulation. And when they were talking about like modeling, like the effect of magnetic tape degradation, uh, 
and like how how many strides like physical modeling had had made in the past few years i realized then that was really you know in five to ten years and it's true now that was really what was going to enable you to make any sound you want in the box like we can model reality in a way and and you know we're getting there we're getting there now um with visuals as well uh you know through ai or not so yeah i think uh (laughs) that was a pretty big moment i do think um you know, you say making things easier. And I will say, uh, the moment, <laughs> this is, this is funny. The moment I decided to get into modular, I was trying to finish, um, I was trying to finish, uh, an album and, um, I was like, oh, I don't know what to do with this song. And, uh, I downloaded, you know, I love this company output. They put out a bunch of really great, um, instruments, but they released this thing called Arcade, which is basically like splice in a box, you know, like it's got all the loops and you just like, you pick a key and you push a button and it sounds great. And I was like, maybe let me try that. Cause it's like, you get a week free and, and I used it and it did sound great. And then like, uh, I was very conflicted about it because it was so easy <laughs> that I realized like (laughs) if I continued to make music the way I was making it, I would have to go all in on that because that's, you know, if you want to make as much and uh, the best music you can in the box as fast as possible, you're (laughs) using one of those. I mean, you definitely are. Yeah. In fact, I, um, I I watched a, it was a quick kind of TikTok the other day in which, um, I forget the guy's name, but there's a, there's a dude on on there who's just a fucking wizard yeah. on Ableton. He's he's incredible. Let me just fucking let me just look up who he is. I'll give him a shout out. Yeah, so it's DNKSAUS, DNK South or whatever. Okay, I got to check it out. I mean, the guy is next level. Yeah. It really he really is just incredible. But like, anyway, he had a he had a TikTok called "Is Splice Cheating" or whatever. Yeah. It was like all, all Splice isn't cheating, and like he um. Yeah, so, so he gets something from Splice and then does some crazy next level shit with yeah. it. It's just like, no, no, if you, which is, and that is totally awesome. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, I mean, you can use these, and I guess this is a similar, um, uh, this is similar to the arguments that get made in favor of using AI tech, right? For, for, for anything creative, I suppose, is that you can use it as an aid necessarily rather than a, you know, just a, a cheat. Totally. Right? Yeah. And I agree. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not hating on arcade. I think that's an amazingly designed tool. And if I was, uh, you know, scoring commercials or making music uh, for other people as my career, I would hundred percent use those tools because they enable you to create faster. You still have the element of tastemaker. You still have the element of editor. You still have the element of like, even how you use that sound. Like I'm sure that guy on TikTok like ran it through a bunch of processing and it sounded nothing like the original. But even if you are using just samples off a of splice, I think it's fine. You know, like it, I, it's a, I don't think this is a great comparison or a great example, but I always look at how like, I forget exactly what the pop song was, but some of the samples were from GarageBand's like default sample pack. And it was like a big R&B pop song that like everybody loved. Right. Um, and it's a good song. Like I, I like the song. I don't remember what it was, but I was like, oh, that's cool. And I'm sure it's not the only example. So 
yeah i don't know i i it's i don't want to be the guy who's like yeah using those things is cheating it's too easy back in my day because back in my day i made shittier music because it was because it was hard and i didn't have the samples like man if i could just download all the samples i could download now back in like the late 90s early 2000s damn oh man i would have been i would have been a hit i would have yeah. been a hit D- <laughs> dj shadow mark two yeah exactly I totally forgot you went to NYU. What did you? What do you learn at a music tech uh, degree in at NYU? Um, I learned I had no idea what the hell I wanted to do with my life. Um, so no, specifically though, like what are the modules? What do you do? Yeah, so uh, part of it actually was the reason I got back into like engineering and programming because um, I had tried to get into programming in my undergrad, and I was like, this is the most boring shit I've ever learned in my life because they're you know they teach you in the worst possible way they teach you with like let's make a banking application guys isn't that exciting no it's not so when i went to nyu there were a lot of classes where it's like okay now we're going to write a bunch of code for like audio dsp or um you know even just an audio ui like here let's make a little ui for like this you know sound source and and that's when i realized um that i really enjoyed that as long as the result was something I believed in, was passionate about. Um, So that was part of the program. There was also like a small portion, which was like, you know, one of my professors was Morton Sabotnik. It was more about just the creative process um, and uh, looking at different techniques, like classic techniques from the 70s and how they translate into newer techniques, like with like systems like Kima. This was back in 2004 or five, I think, by the way. So it was definitely Mm, a while ago. Yeah. Um, and then the third portion was like, um, audio engineering slash scoring, um, where, yeah, I, I loved that so much, but you know, you know, the music I made, I made a bunch of like moody guitar with like crazy ambient (laughs) and granular trails for every single thing. And my professor was like, Hey bud. Yeah you know, good job with that assignment. By the way, I got some ex-students who need a programmer over here. Maybe you'd like to do a little bit of that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah, so it was was a good range of stuff. I think people who went to that program came out either as um, people who worked on foundational technologies. Like I, I had a friend who went on to like work in like beat detection algorithms and stuff. Or you went to work in a professional studio and, um, you know, record in a professional studio. Uh, or you went on to be like a super talented artist. I think like Debit, I think, went to the same program much later. Um, because you do learn quite a bit about the history of how electronic music was made. And I think that's that's really valuable to know. Yeah, absolutely. What do you, what do you imagine the changes might be between that sort of course now like what, what do you think they you yeah. know if, if there if there are big differences what do you think they are yeah i have no idea um what what the differences are in reality i haven't really kept up but um yeah i i think the software probably plays quite a bit more a part of it i wouldn't be surprised if um because we did talk about lots of the the technology that was coming out then like music information retrieval which is how we can like detect keys and stuff like um which i'm gonna call it uh um 
something in tune the the dj right, right, yeah. right yeah yeah in, in key yeah, key, in key, yeah, yeah. um yeah so i now maybe that course is talking about like generative ai music or something i don't know but i i definitely think that is the program that would lean into some of those more recent technologies um mm. but i i'm sure as long as the same professors are still there and i do believe morton sabotnik is still teaching there that the history is still taught what did you intend to go on and do? What was the kind of motivation for doing, doing that course? <laughs> the motivation was to yeah. put off <laughs> having, to, <laughs> having to live in the real world as long as possible. Um, yeah, I mean, I had gone, that's, that's why I went to London. I went to tech school out in London for audio engineering and like it was really just to be in London and uh, and, you know, be a part of a music scene that was so inspirational to me, especially during my like warp records fandom days. And um, it was right when like boards of Canada and stuff came out. Um, and it was the same going to this program. It was like, I don't know what I want to do, but I want to do music. It turns out that I learned in that program doing music uh, as my job didn't feel great. And Right. It was really stressful <laughs> because I started picking up a few gigs, you know, like scoring or whatever, or even just like recording, like just, hey, can you record this stuff for me? Because uh, I had like a little setup with a few mics, nothing fancy. Um, and it, when it felt like work, it just didn't feel great. It wasn't why I started doing this. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it really can be a challenge to um, to do something professionally, which is something which you love, which you genuinely love. Yeah. You know, I mean, I certainly, I, I find myself when I have to do something in music, like if I've got like a project that I, that has to be done, you know, yeah. even if it's been something that I've, I've really wanted to do at the outset, when it becomes work, I really lose my motivation a lot of the time. Yeah. And that's really soul destroying when it's something that you ostensibly, you know, I feel passionate about. I, yeah, I agree. I mean, it sucks the joy out of it. And I mean, to be honest, like that's going to happen. You do have to get to a point, for example, when you're writing something you want to release into the world where you do have to do some more technical or even sort of administrative tasks. You know, got to make those, right. those edits or, you know, chop tracks to fit on a vinyl or whatever, you know, like that's not fun. But if you had so much fun making the music that you're like, this is worth it, I can do this, then it's fine. If that's all you're doing, then, and you have nothing to, you know, there's no joy, <laughs> then it becomes really hard. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask you a question about the kind of cultural ubiquity of tech these days. Yeah, yeah. And the kind of, and the, I think the the kind of, oh, we can hear my cat. My cat's oh, uh, yeah. I made love a couple, your cats. couple of appearances on the podcast recently. The, they're like, adorable. Make, they make should it, be the star. Yeah. Another one. <laughs> um, yeah, the kind of the, the cultural importance of tech, and I think the um, the relative decline of music in the kind of zeitgeist. I mean, obviously, music is still everywhere, mm. and you know, it plays. Uh, I think what what looks like a big part in the culture, but actually, I think it has declined in in relative importance. And and tech just seems to kind of eat everything. I mean, if you look at the, um, yeah. I mean, the rise of TikTok is just a, um, it's just absolutely mind blowing. And the kind of m most recent 
stats I was reading about it was that if it you know continues to grow on trend as a company, it will be bigger than Alphabet in the next within five years, yeah. which is just completely crazy. And, and <laughs> yeah. most of that is is based upon young people, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. using it and using it in a creative way. In a way, and I think a lot of those people in decades gone by would have been making music, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me your observations about yeah. that generally. I mean, yeah, there's it's, it's so many thoughts about that, um, especially recently. I'm not going to say anything too profound here. I think it's been said before, but, you know, it's really a double-edged sword at the end of the day. Um, I don't know if this is like old man shakes fists at Sky, but like, I'm conflicted, you know, working at such a big company that makes these phones and stuff. Because I, I ride the subway, you just see everyone on your device all the time. And <laughs> it's very dystopian. I am convinced we have been living in a dystopian society for a very long time. Um, but it's, it's me. I'm not saying, oh, but I go home and I'm never on my... No, like, I've been trying, uh, really, for the first time to play the game. As an artist, like, you know, you have to be on social media. You have to continue to engage your audience with whatever it is. Um, previously, I'd be like, I released an album. Enjoy it. Farewell. <laughs> <laughs> and that just does not work. It doesn't work. Trust me. I mean, you know, you see the numbers. It does not work. <laughs> but, um, you know, and it, it's been really rewarding to be honest. It's been really, really rewarding, but it's also been incredibly draining. So, you know, all this talk about mental health in terms of being a musician today or a producer or a DJ or whatever, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, uh, all this tech having a, a, a mental, taking a mental toll on you, it's very real. Uh, you're going to be on your phone or whatever looking at these things because you have to be. Uh, the smart ones, I think like, I think even Travis does this, they have people who do their posts for them. And that's, mm. that's the way yeah. to do it. And if you can afford that, and you have a team that will do that, that's amazing. Um, but so that's one side. But the other side, like you said, these kids on TikTok doing really creative things, um, who quote unquote, would have been making music previously. Uh, I think it was George actually when we when we were all here for the Hot Flush show said this and it has stuck with me I think he said something along the lines of like yeah I mean like that's what they consider releasing music now they're not even releasing it they're, like they put it on TikTok and that's it that's the song um, I mean to a certain extent that's true uh, I mean eventually it probably hits digital platforms but it's it's like TikTok first and I mean, it's weird to me, uh, but I totally get it now that I'm making all these videos and it's like, oh, right. Because that is like, that's the priority. That's the priority. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. if that's the, if that's the place where people are consuming it or that's the kind of distribution network, then it makes complete sense that that would be the priority, right? That's just, that's just the, the kind of environment that it lives in. Yeah. Right? I mean, how are you going to get through the, this? I mean, it's amazing. Everyone can make music, but you know, everyone doesn't have to put it on Spotify. Um, how do you cut through the noise on like one of those platforms like Apple Music or Spotify versus like you have followers on this social media platform that are going to see your video, watch it, listen to it, and then like 
talk to you about it. Like <laughs> when I open Apple Music or Spotify, it's the least inspiring music listening experience that I can possibly imagine having or having right now. Um, mm. And yeah, it's it's kind of the same as me trying to get out of Ableton. Like I, I miss, I miss like having that connection with the music that you're playing and if that connection is because you know the audience can literally like comment on your song or whatever you posted then you know i guess it's still better than somebody just clicking a button on some app that's actually wild because i'd never really thought about it like this but it, it's completely true that uh if you think about using tiktok or instagram as a as a direct distribution for your for your music then yeah you absolutely do get those immediate interactions which is yeah uh which are just not av available on the streaming platforms and, and actually weren't available previously either with with physical products but uh, actually that is a real connection with with people who may like hopefully like <laughs> maybe not like yeah. well you know what you're what you're doing there but that actually I mean, that's a, that's a quite a positive development. You yeah. could quite easily make the argument, right? A hundred percent. And like, as someone who's experiencing that, experiencing that in, in the full right now for really the first time, because I'm trying, I'm trying to make posts regularly and like share my process and my music with people and seeing people who like last week, somebody posted like, they were like, you know, for fuck's sake, I just checked your band camp and you're Praveen. I have your first album and like they never would have found me if I wasn't posting on TikTok or whatever. Like, and now they're like, they're in it. They're commenting. They give me, you know, props, feedback, whatever. I, I love it. It's, it's really quite rewarding. I mean, I understand it's also quite stressful and draining, especially if you have people who, you know, don't like what you're doing or, you know, I'm, <laughs> pretty insignificant in the grand scheme of things if you are a much more significant prominent figure uh in music or whatnot you are going to attract uh negative attention so it, you know if you're in that situation it's not great yeah i mean it but it does provide something which is you know pretty tangible which is really lacking i think in the in in the wider sort of distribution methods yeah. i mean the exceptions that is Bandcamp, and we we, yes. we mentioned before that we were going to we were going to talk about this and just done a couple of uh, long pods about the kind of <laughs> yeah. the broader situation with Bandcamp, but I mean, just talking about it generally as a as a as a kind of you know a, a platform and a kind of method of distributing yeah. music and a, and a and a method of of I guess communicating with fans because that's that's a big difference that you know the the platform has with just about every other. Uh, possibility that you have to release me. And I, actually, just before this conversation, I was I was trying to find a platform which does uh, the same thing, mm -hmm. and I just couldn't find one. Like, I mean, there are loads of kind of DIY aggregators or whatever, but there's n I couldn't find a single thing which enables you to, which is just a kind of easy solution for uploading an MP3, which you can then sell to people, right? Which is which is wild that that, that doesn't exist, to be honest. But yeah. um. Yeah, I mean, yeah, tell me what you think about Bandcamp generally, and then I'm going to ask a couple of questions about it. Yeah, uh, it's, I mean, I think Bandcamp is amazing because it's so focused and simple. And like you said, it's one of the only things doing uh, doing it right now. Um, I, I think one of the key parts of Bandcamp, well, there's two that I think of immediately. One is that it's free. 
<laughs> as an artist to just put your stuff up there. I mean, to an extent, they take a percentage of sales or whatever, but um, you don't have to worry about hosting that page or whatever. That's something that um, I think is a big deal to most people who don't want to have to deal with that part of, of uh, the process. But also um, the social aspect is really quite powerful. And, you know, it's, it's, you see what everybody's buying. You can, you know, go check out what else they got, you know, if your tastes sort of align. And the editorial side of things, of course, I think is, is pretty on point. You know, the Bandcamp Daily or whatever, uh, or weekly, I forget. It, it's usually pretty good. Um, mm. And they, they usually pick some pretty great music, to be honest. Uh, yeah, I, there have been attempts to do this before, though. I, I, you know, and they've all kind of failed to certain degrees. Um, I wish I could remember the name, but there were some guys from Ghostly who even, they had this sort of, it was kind of band camp, but it was band camp for like their artists. So it wasn't really band camp. It wasn't like anyone can upload, but it was trying to make that like direct artist to, actually, I think you could sign up and upload your music, but it was trying to do the same thing, like direct artist to fan connection um, with like a sort of, there was a bit of a Patreon before Patreon tie-in, you know, you could give some, some benefits outside of just the music. Um, I thought it was great and it was far better designed than Bandcamp, but, um, you know, Bandcamp's kind of a miserable experience to actually use, but, uh, but it failed, you know, like, I don't know why, but it's not that people haven't tried to do this before. Is that, um, what was the question? Okay, let's just go straight to this. I mean, is there a way of doing it so... Um, is, is there a way of establishing a sort of protocol which could then be transferable, if you see what I mean? I mean, is, is there a way of kind of open sourcing yeah. this? So, uh, right. you know, so that so you wouldn't be kind of beholden to... Um, to an you know to an organization or to something which could then be bought mm-hmm. by I don't know should we say song trader <laughs> yeah um, you know I mean yeah with the the acquisition and the uh, the layoffs I think all that is awful um, I mean I I don't know what's going to happen who knows it may be business as usual and artists have an optional opt in for licensing or something that would be probably yeah that seems the most the, likely yeah and probably the best case scenario um and that that would be fine you know layoffs are happening everywhere that's awful it's but it's not i don't want to jump to being like it's malicious i mean they're, they're happening all over um probably not for the best reasons usually so a corporation could save money but you know um but you know to to, to open source it i think that's a really tricky a tricky problem and i'm not the best suited to answer it. I'm not really deep into more recent sort of um, blockchain technologies or whatever. I mean, I'm I'm really evo- trying not to say crypto because it is not yeah, seen. Yeah, bl- blockchain is fine. <laughs> not seen in the best light. Um, but when I think of like decentralized, at least that's a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the fluff I was hearing from that that world. Um, and I wonder, you know, I think that. If those technologies can help, I think it's 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 less about that, um, and it, well, it's not less about that, but it's I think it's more important to obfuscate that from from like an artist like myself or 
a label like Hot Flush who's going to use the platform, like they should not even know <laughs> that these blockchain technologies are really being used if it's possible. Right. Like it really should just enable them to operate on their own, but still be connected to um, to some accounting of like fans who purchased or something. Because yeah, it, it yeah. doesn't necessarily have to be a, a payment system. Exactly. Right? I think that's that's yeah. a kind of common misconception yeah. with with that stuff is that it necessarily has to be some kind of financial solution, which is which is not the case. Right? No, I don't. And I that stuff always really confuses me when when it's like all about like some coin. It's like I just don't know why, but. I mean, the core tech could be used for other things. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. There's, I remember reading about like even like file system technologies that were, you know, uh, associated with all the blockchain stuff. And I've also heard all of this is worse than many alternatives, but those alternatives are usually centralized. But um, yeah, I mean, it would be magical if like you didn't have to pay to set up your own little page because that was also somehow connected and funded through some of these file hosting protocols and stuff. Um, Cause that's really where those costs come in. You know, if you don't have a system that's enabling that to be funded by, you know, everybody's purchases, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's like, a, you know, it's not just yours cause maybe you're not selling enough, but like everybody's chipping in, uh, which is very unlikely. But um yeah, then, then, then it's back to basically you're setting up your own website, and nobody wants to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, like just from from our experience, like we tried to do that like a few years back, and it was it was just um, I, well, I tell you what, I belatedly realised that the problem was, and what the big advantage of of Bandcamp uh, is, it's it's what you mentioned, it's the social aspect, it's it's the fact that you can there are there are users on the platform and you can see what they've bought and there it, there is a kind of community thing which is which is directly built in. When you're when you're starting your own website, you're on your own. You're like a you know an island in the kind of sea of like e-commerce. Yeah. You know, and if you're selling underground music, that's a pretty lonely place to be, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. If you if you don't already have like loads of people going to your website or whatever, then that's yeah, it's not gonna work out so great. Um yeah. But I I mean sure, you could find a technical solution for these problems and it would still not can you sorry, can you could just can you explain in very basic terms how what well, what that would mean like you know to, to people who listen to this who are super crypto skeptics yeah like how would what would that what would that actually mean like a, a solution not using payments but using blockchain for this kind of thing i mean honestly i don't really know i'm not really entrenched in that world but the idea of the blockchain is that it's like a ledger so you could be keeping you know count of all these people who are buying your music so that would somehow handle the social side of things but, um, you know, I don't want to bring currency into it, like the coin thing, but that side of it, the value of whatever this, you know, thing would be, uh, could potentially be used to pay for like the file hosting and things like that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I'm not, I'm not really a crypto or blockchain guy. Uh, I was, yeah, I looked from afar and was like, oh, cool. <laughs> but uh yeah i mean when it comes to the details i'm probably not the best person to explain it but um i look at like collectives that um i think 
DAO is the term they use, like the yeah, yeah, yeah. decentralized yeah. organization, something. Um, and and I think decentralized autonomous organization. I yeah, realized. yeah. And I think I think a lot of that is is some utopian BS. Like I don't think <laughs> I don't think that, especially when it's all hinged on like the value of this virtual coin thing. Like I just no doesn't really make much sense to me. Um, but there are some interesting ideas there, like like that, you know, there is this sort of communal pitching in of some sort, and that would be potentially some part of the solution if if you were trying to remove all costs from like the artist setting up their page, mm. you know. But somebody's got to pay money. Like, <laughs> money doesn't just appear, regardless of what the crypto guys want to tell you. It doesn't just appear out of nowhere. So. You know, maybe it's the users when they buy something, you know, a portion of that goes to whatever this is that's funding the file system and stuff. Or maybe it's like, you know, the artists themselves, God forbid. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not really best to position to really talk about details there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, as I've been kind of going through this and, you know, all the reading I've done for the previous couple of episodes that I've done on, on this topic um, and and then, yeah, just just today, looking for alternatives, which I hadn't done previously, which is I just assumed that there would be some, but I'm just mind blown that the there aren't. Like it really, it's really kind of brought it home to me just how inadequate the subscription model is. Yeah, because it because I mean, like one of the the key things which I wasn't really aware of actually before. I'm digging into this. One of the real important aspects of Bandcamp as a platform was the ability for fans of musicians to pay more money and have and and that and the extent to which that is actually a culture on yes. the platform. Yeah. And uh the subscription model just eliminates that entirely, which is just crazy as a business model because I mean you're totally limiting your upside mm-hmm. in the you know in the pursuit of I guess uh, predictable returns for investors, but actually, it, it's really it's really short sighted and really isn't. Uh, it's just not adequate for for musicians really at all, and particularly for musicians who are are making music which is a bit more niche. You know, maybe it's going to work for Taylor Swift, but I mean, she's making a billion dollars through touring anyway. So, what does she care about her Spotify streams? <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, it seems to me that that's a real problem in the in the ecosystem i don't know i mean the subscriptions model has a has its place i wouldn't say for selling music specifically but like i mean patreon seems to be pretty cool you know that's a subscription model technically right sure yeah i mean i was i was referring directly to the way subscriptions work on the streaming services oh right no that has oh pay 10 bucks oh my god that is the worst (laughs) <laughs> the worst development in how we consume music i think that has ever happened not necessarily well you know i wanted to say not for the consumers necessarily but honestly it is because it commodity it makes like all this music such a commodity you you don't have to care or think yeah it really really detracts from the experience of listening to music i think yeah it really does well it I think it detracts from the value of music. I mean, when I would go into Rhino Records and I'm like, I have some cash and I really hope what I buy, I'm going to like, let me ask the clerk for a recommendation. 
honestly, it was one of the best moments of my life. Like I was like, hey, I heard this girl boy song by this guy Aphex Twin on the amp on MTV2 or whatever. And he's like, oh, I got just the thing for you. And he gave me this, you know, music album, Lunatic Harness, um, you know, Planet Mew and uh, blew my mind. I mean, it completely changed my trajectory musically and opened my eyes to be like oh my god not only is this whole other world i haven't found out about like i feel like i am on an adventure (laughs) like it felt good and it gave me like so much of a connection to that music that today i struggle to get with with really anything I, i listen to on an apple music or something even if i go in with the intention of like hey, I really want to check out that new album. It's just lost. I think a big part of it is that when you um, when you are constrained in your supply, you just listen to every piece of music that you have that many more times. And, yeah. and quite a lot of the time, the value of music only reveals itself on maybe the fourth or fifth or yeah. tenth or twentieth listen. Oh yeah, let know? me tell you, I would not be an Autechre fan if I just got one stream of LP5 off of Apple Music, I would have run screaming. But uh, yeah. (laughs) But I think the the, the subscription model is a really big obstacle to... I mean, it's perverse, right? Because on the one hand, yeah, it makes music discovery more easy than ever before. But actually it places a big obstacle in the in the path of people really appreciating yeah. the music that they are supposed to be discovering, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't really feel like the discovery side of things is unsolvable or that huge of an issue. And I also don't think, I mean, I think from an artist's financial success perspective, yeah, it's a problem because the editors of those playlists are in control now. But there's always been an equivalent. I think more than the discoverability it's the the connection the connection to that music i mean it's like Mm. this crime of abundance happening where we we feel like first off everyone feels like they just deserve everything they they deserve like everything and sometimes for free in most cases but more than that it's like if you have everything (laughs) do you appreciate it I mean, mm. it's the same reason. Like, you, let's just go right back to modular. Like, I have a fixed setup here, and I appreciate every single one of these little pieces of gear so much more than I've ever appreciated one of the million plugins that I can, you know, put on a track at any given moment. Okay, there's one last area I wanted to ask you about. Okay, which also which also kind of relates to tech actually, um, and I'm interested. Um, in your opinion, as someone as a, as a tech guy, obviously uh, please don't you revealed your, you've, you've, you've revealed yourself as a reluctant tech guy. <laughs> <laughs> I am a multifaceted <laughs> artist, <laughs> right? So it's it's the I mean the area is the um, the development of music through local scenes and through in like personal interaction, um, whether it's in the studio or in clubs or you know just but direct person-to-person interactions which when we've discussed quite a bit on the show before and is is i think the um the, the way historically that um genuinely exciting and new music scenes have emerged yeah do you think that well i mean do, do you how, well, how much of the decline of those things if 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 that's even true mm-hmm 
can be laid at the door of big tech? And and is there a tech solution to right. that kind of decline? <laughs> I don't think there's a tech solution to getting people to hang out and talk and share ideas more. Um, I, I think that happens a lot digitally, but it's just it's just not the same. But I will say, like you know, like um, there again, it's this double-edged sword thing. Uh, I think through technology music and sounds and ideas do propagate a lot faster and we we talked a lot about that um when we were doing the the sepulchre stuff and and had our interviews and whatnot because that was a big thing for us like we wouldn't have heard so many of the sounds coming out of the uk or even met each other you know if it wasn't Mm -hmm. for things like the internet and that that you know quickening of the sharing of ideas digitally um i don't i don't know if the importance or or how often you know local social connections play into you know music these days because i'm speaking from my experience and and my generation of like people who grew up as the internet and all this stuff was being introduced i think for those of us who had a life before all of this stuff we we may overvalue the importance of you know in-person connections i i don't know i mean i i don't i don't think i'm overvaluing it but i'd be interested to hear about someone who grew up with all of these tools and technologies around them what they think you know uh like Mm. are they like well what are you talking about instagram and tiktok and whatever has completely changed the way i make and share music so no in-person local stuff does not matter um so i don't know i mean for me it does matter it mattered for a lot of the music i made and especially because when we talk about a local scene you know like a like a new york scene or whatever um that's where i think it really matters and i think it matters there because you're building a community more than anything else and it's a local community um and that's the important part because feeling supported is so important, especially when you're starting making music. It's so easy to get discouraged and to be like, especially now, there's a million other artists who are better than me. Sure, there's always someone better. But if you have a local crew who's supporting you and growing with you, that is, you know, priceless. And it's still happening. Just like I said, like in New York, I can look at crews like Kindergarten that are releasing amazing music and you know, they're, they're relatively new artists and stuff, but they have that support network, that community. And I think that's really valuable. I hope we don't lose that. I don't know what's happening in other cities, but I don't think we've lost that in New York. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are, there are cities, which is that, which that has historically been really strong. Right. And those are the, the, the cities everyone, all, everyone always, sorry, the cities that we all know, right. The, the, the famous ones, the, the, the cities which consistently throw out, amazing music that they're distinguishable distinguishable by that fact right but that those things do happen right yeah so it's actually great news to hear you say that that it is still happening at least in new york yeah <laughs> it's 100 yeah. percent happening in new york i mean even the last time i went to nowadays like it's so nice to see people like they recognize each other they go regularly they're like they're there for it and um and it's it's a great environment i i loved seeing it it was like wow okay cool you guys are doing it yeah absolutely so last question what do you think about the existence of aliens 
<laughs> what is this? I'm not Matthew Deere, man. <laughs> um, I, you really put me on the spot with this one. Come on, when, everyone's got. Everyone knows what they think about this. I mean, okay. <laughs> when I was around 11 years old, I was driving um, with my mom. My mom was driving me and my sister home. And, you know, I, I, I grew up upstate, like, uh, like an hour and a half, two and a half hours outside the city. So not in the city. So, um, in a town called Hyde Park. And, and I, I, I remember like I was reading some weird, like alien, you know, young adults novel or whatever. And then my mom shouts and she's like, what the hell is that? And there was some crazy, you know, lights in the sky and, me and my mom, because my mom loves this shit like me. She loves horror. She likes sci-fi. Uh, definitely where I get a lot of that. Uh, she's like, let's go. Let's go. We're going to chase it. My sister, on the other hand, was like freaking out, like hysterical <laughs> crying. So, you know, we went up our driveway and dropped her off. And we went back down and it was gone. So, okay. you know what? <laughs> Could have been military. I don't know. It's the same with ghosts, I love being skeptical about all this stuff, but, you know, I watched The Nun 2 with Lindsay the other night, and I'm not going to say that I wasn't going into the bathroom with no lights on and being freaked <laughs> the hell out. <laughs> so, you know, a little bit of belief there. <laughs> nice. I hope they come down and fix this band camp problem. That's what I hope aliens do. Well... <laughs> someone may be capable of doing that i'm not sure exactly who it would be but listen man we're going to do a part two of this we've already planned to do that but thanks so much for your time today mate it's been it's been great thanks for having me paul thanks yeah that was praveen sharma what an interesting conversation we don't usually get too deep into music tech type stuff on the show do we and um it's nice to make an exception sometimes. Praveen's obviously knows his shit inside out. And uh, if you don't follow him on socials, then I highly advise checking out his modular jams on Instagram and TikTok because, uh, yeah, they're pretty cool. And you know, some of the music he's been making, in fact, all of the music he's been making recently is also awesome. And, you know, the cliche of, you know, the more modules you own, the less music you make with Praveen is absolutely not the case. As we heard, it's been really good for his workflow and productivity, which is just awesome. It's great. Anyway, really enjoyed this. Again, reminder about the Pledge Drive. If you want to get involved, it's patreon.com slash scubaofficial or scubaofficial.io slash support. We'd be extremely grateful to have your support going forward. And if you have been thinking about it, well, this is the time to do it, right? Time to pull the trigger. And I will see you back here, same time, same place next week on the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Let's go, 
the secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. Um...